So what time does the 7 o'clock meeting start? 7 o'clock. <laughs> so welcome to Position in Neutrality. Welcome to New Freedom. Um, tonight we're going to be taking a look at the first steps. I'm not going to do all the things I normally do. If you're brand new members here, you need to know that you're welcome to have your family here, regardless if you just got here or whatever. They can get in at 6.15, spend the time with you while you're here, and and see you doing better. And the same thing with Chaplain Lee's Recovery Church Service on Saturday. Members, if you have family members that you're trying to get Christmas gifts for, if you'll check in with the chaplain, he's going to do a Christmas service on the 17th. And if, if you bring kids, he's going to make sure they get a gift. So even if you've never been to church before, bring the kids, at least get them a gift, right? You never know what... And another thing, last week, those of you who were here and those of you online, the first time we ever did it, we, we uh, asked for an intercessory prayer because we wanted the forces at ADCRR to relent and let our men and women come here that were bound here. And uh, what happened this week is not only did they relent, but they're helping us actively to make sure everyone that was granted a access to here is getting to come here. They're, I mean, they're, they're, working, they're working in partnership with us to make sure that happens, and so it's getting real exciting around. And uh, it seemed appropriate since Chaplain Lee, we have a chaplain in the house. And he, he's going to give us a prayer of thanks for the, all that God has done in, in all of our lives and for New Freedom Chapel. It's all you. All right. So we came to the Lord last week, touched and agreed. We came in a, a body of community. And as we joined forces together, the enemy was upset and he couldn't stand the pressure. And the hands of uh, Department of Corrections was released, as Joe said. And we received such a blessing and an outpouring that the doors didn't just open, but they swung wide open. So we recognize the power of prayer, and we just want to thank God just for a moment. So if you all would just stand one more time with me. See, standing together is, is, is power. Where one or two come together, we could chase thousands. Amen? So... Let's thank God. Father, we thank you again for today, for everything you've done and for everything you're about to do. We recognize you because all the glory belongs to you. What you're getting ready to do in this place called New Freedom, where lives continually come and become transformed. We know that it's nothing that man can do, but it's only you. So we thank you and we give you all the praise in advance for what you're about to do with the outpouring in this place, with the lives that will be transformed, the lives that will be changed, and the lives that will be propelled into society to do great things for the kingdom. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray all these things, and we all touch and agree and say amen. amen. Thank, thank you, you Joe. Thank you, Chaplain Lee, and thank you, uh, ADCRR, Department of Corrections. Hey, just so you guys know, those guys, you guys programming here, we are moving forward full speed with the Women's Center. We went and looked at it today, and we, we, uh, we took the Department of Corrections with us. We're so sure it's happening. They're picking out their offices. That's how, 
that's that's how clear it is, right? So it's it's a victory for all of you and for everyone that's coming behind you, right? And and we're we're thrilled. Okay, so we're in step one tonight. We're going to launch right in. Um, the first thing I want to do about the step one experience is take you to the forward to the first edition of your book so you understand why we do this session the way we do this session and why we've always done it this way. A lot of times over the years people kind of make stuff up and they add it in and, and people are sitting in the rooms of the fellowships, they think they're in the program and then they hear stuff and it becomes doctrine but it's not part of what the original members of Alcoholics Anonymous wrote about their experience. So we want to call your attention to, you're not in the program unless you're in the book. You're in the fellowship. And, and this is their testimony. So our job is not to change what they had because we had a different experience, but to find our experience within theirs. Because theirs can be scaled and duplicated. Ours is a one-off. Does that make sense? Okay, so they talk in, in the forward to the first edition. It says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. So who's we that we see on all the walls and fellowships? The first 100, not us, which is why we don't want to change it. Because if I want what they had and I'm willing to go to any lengths to get it, then I'm ready to take certain steps. And those certain steps are, are found in this process that they describe. Does that make sense? So that's why we do this here. It's not for me to tell you what the book says but to show you what it says to me and encourage you to have your experience. And if we both do our job, we'll share a spiritual experience in this room tonight and every night. Yes? yes. All right, so I'm going to go right from there. I'm not going to get into the history tonight because I don't think it's necessary. I want to look at Bill's story. No, I want to go to the doctor's opinion briefly. And I want to talk um, to the bottom of page XXVII the very bottom of the page, Roman numeral 27, if you're following in the book, but it's in a section called the doctor's opinion. The doctor was Dr. William Silkworth, and although not an alcoholic or an addict, he was a doctor who treated people who were with the addiction of alcoholism or other illnesses, morphine addiction, various things that were coming back from World War I, that time frame. Make sense? So he was, he was an expert in the field, but it wasn't a medical diagnosis at the time of this. So he was, he was a brave advocate for people with an addictive disorder because it wasn't a very well-liked theory at the time. Does it make sense? It was, it was a brave theory to put forth. Um, at the bottom of the page it says, Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. And this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. So what do you imagine he's talking about this hospital procedure? How many of you had to be detoxed before they could do something else? So we're still using some part of that model. Okay. So it says, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. How many of you have questioned the idea of an allergy or just blew by it because it didn't make any sense? A lot of people do, and we tell jokes about it, right? 
How many of you have heard that tired old joke in recovery? I, I drink and I break out in handcuffs. <laughs> well, I want to help you understand because that's such a fundamental part of the recovery process. In fact, the authors tell us in another section, until we understand the physical nature of this, we won't get well. So how many of you are drinkers in the room? Oh, good, a bunch of you. <laughs> that's exciting. That didn't always happen. When you drank, did you find that alcohol energized you? Yes. It's a sedative. So that would be an abnormal reaction to a sedative, wouldn't it? Now, if you are a doctor, you would see this abnormal reaction, and in medical speak, you would say, hmm, that may be some manifestation of an allergy. Does that help? Some of you got that, because I felt somebody get that. And if you, don't, if you don't believe me, where's my meth addicts? Do you find that stuff calms you down? Like you quit? It's a pretty powerful stimulant. Where's my opiate addicts? Any of you surprised people by when you finally got a fix? You're up cleaning the house and shit. Yeah, that's, that's an abnormal reaction. So that's what they're calling our attention to, the abnormal reaction I have once I put it in my body. And it may be the manifestation of an allergy, because that's the only conclusion he can come to. He's not had the experience. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So, so the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So you'd want to ask yourself, since it never occurs, how many in a never? Zero. So have you ever put alcohol, cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, whatever, fentanyl in your body, and discovered you took more than your original intent. So that never happens in an average temperate user. That doesn't mean you're an addict or an alcoholic of the hopeless variety, but it means you're not temperate. So we're crossing off the list. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, so then it says these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all, and once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, so have you found that you formed a habit that you have not been able to break? Yeah. Notice they use the word cannot safely use, because some people may not be an alcoholic, but how many of you, when you used, you often got into a scrape? How many of you didn't get in a scrape every time you used? How many of you discovered that every time you got in a scrape, you'd been using? So it's not safe. Does that make sense? We're trying to help you self-diagnose. I'm not trying to tell you, but we're trying to dissect what the man said. Okay? Okay, so have you found that you've formed a habit you cannot break? Okay? Have you lost your self-confidence? And don't say yes just because Sean says yes. He's been through this. <laughs> Sometimes we doubt we've lost our self-confidence. Sometimes we think, well, I just don't have enough willpower. But then you're not believing that this is really a, a disease of the mind and body, right? And this, but we'll help you with that, okay? Their reliance upon things human. Their problems pile up on them, and they become astonishingly, dif 
astonishingly difficult to solve. Did you at least find that you did have a series of problems piling up on you that became astonishingly difficult to solve? Okay, so it, we, may, we don't know yet that we're an alcoholic or an addict of the hopeless variety, but what we do know is I now know enough information about the condition and my experience that I might want to read further. Yeah. Right? Okay. So then it says frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. How many of you had people begging you to just stop? If you loved me, you'd stop. How many of you loved them? How many of you stopped? I mean, stopped and stayed stopped. <laughs> Not just enough to fade the heat, you know what I mean? Okay. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. See, I've got to talk to you not in the common language of people that don't understand the condition. I've got to talk to you as someone who has experienced the condition. I've got to talk to you about a condition that although I knew I was drinking and drugging myself to death and ruining the lives of my children and my family and I desperately wanted it to stop, I could manifest no outwardly action to prove that to anybody. Not threat of jail, not reality of jail, not threat of whatever. So although they had frothy emotional appeal, I was not reached till someone came and talked to me about the experience I had had and then the one he'd had that lifted him out of it. Okay? I'm going to go from there to the bottom of that page. It says, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. So here's a little test for you. How many of you are sober in here tonight? Wow, a good percentage. That's really good. Okay, how many of you have been sober for at least 72 hours? Wow, similar percentage. That's good. So, that being so, how many of you can bring to consciousness right now, sitting here sober more than 72 hours, that sense of ease and comfort that would come at once by just taking a few? How many, how many do it? I, I want to feel one of you do it. Breathe in. Where's my opiate addicts? Give yourself permission. Just get a little script or something. Okay, so there's one thing you got to get honest with yourself about. I'm sober. I don't pick up no matter what. But sitting here many years sober, I can still instantly bring to consciousness that sense of ease and comfort that came at once all those years ago. So it's just laying in wait. That didn't go away. Okay. All righty, then it goes on to say the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. Some people get a little confused with that. How many of you thought you used the way you wanted to, even though there was evidence that you wanted not to and couldn't not? Did it get difficult to differentiate the true from the false? How many got a little clean time, then used, and then felt really bad about it, but you started telling everybody, I chose to use. <laughs> well, we hear that nonsense, but you can't make a choice with an unsound mind, and the insanity precedes the use. That's why they call it the insanity of the first drink. They said from their experience, they had lost the power of choice in drink. And in my experience, I don't make a choice not to drink. The problem has been removed. 
Does that make sense? And until it was, and I was living in abstinence, it was just a ticking time bomb. I don't live abstinent. The whole purpose of the 12-step experience is to walk in spiritual inebriation. It's the only way I can walk in the world is in inebriation. I've proven it. That's why you guys think I'm weird. I'm drunk all the time. Okay. So it says that to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. So everyone else is going to be doing something. I'm comparing myself to their experience, and pretty soon, no matter how bad I got, I think, why not me? I had a tough week. Why can't I just go have a couple drinks? Any of you ever have that? Why can't I just have a little bump? Any of you like me find out why? For me, what happened is everyone I went with went home, and I went and lived under a bush, because that's what happens to me. Because they don't have thorns. I've told Sean the science of this. Okay. So I'm going to jump out from there so we don't get caught. I like telling stories. Bill likes telling stories, and Bill tells a great story. And I want to, rather than get into a bunch of clinical speak, we just see the doctor's opinion, and then we're going to look at it through the eyes of a hopeless alcoholic. And alcoholism simply means I have an addiction, addictive disorder to the chemical alcohol. That's why we call this a 12-step meeting, but we don't name the problem because we're a solution-focused. And anyway, chemicals are just a, a symptom of my underlying problem, so I don't need a fellowship named after the symptom, if that makes any sense. Okay. So we're on top of page five. Bill says, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. It's pretty powerful words if you think about it. How many of you can consciously recall in your addictive, active addiction when you, it started to be work? to get up and do it again. Like for a while, it seemed like, okay, got to do it. And then after a while, it wasn't a joke. Okay, so that's what he's talking about. It ceased to be a luxury. It was a necessity. It doesn't matter what I got to steal, what I got to let off, what I got to, I got to go get it. Okay, all right, so it says, two, for him it looked like this. Two bottles of gin, often three, got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I'd pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. How many of you went through a period of time with the alcoholic shakes? Where's my opiate addicts? It, it got worse than that, huh? Okay. A tumbler full of gin followed by a half dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. So now he's describing the need to medicate. Where's my drinkers again? You have to have a bottle there and when you woke up so you could knock it back so you could stop. Might have to have a backup because you're going to throw up the first couple tosses. If you got serious enough like me, you had to throw it up in a cup just in case you ran out because you had to run her down a second time. I'm, I'm just cutting you back to see who's real here. That ain't no joke. I can tell you all about it. No one would claim that if they didn't do it. I can assure you of that. 
Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation. Do you remember that illusion, delusion? I'm, I, I get paid up just so I can get on the hook again. I'm having to hustle and lie and cheat just to pay the bills so I can go get more of this poison that's got me in this condition. But I got this. I got a plan. So that's what he says. I, thought I, could, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. Any of you take somebody with you on the journey? So they were very hopeful along with you. And, okay. What happened then? They're, they're having a hard time believing, huh? Okay. So then he says, gradually things got worse. So he's describing all this calamity, and it probably, to those watching him, looked like he was in free fall. Yeah. Any of you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. How many of you have had the people in the fellowship saying, if you quit digging, if you haven't hit the bottom, quit digging. And I'm like, motherfucker, I'm in free fall. When I started falling, I didn't think to grab a shovel. They know digging happened. You know what I'm talking about? Because we are incomprehensible. They don't understand. There is no bottom to hit. Okay. So the house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at the low point of 1932, and I'd somehow formed a group to buy. Any of you be able to get sober up for a day or two and run a hustle? That's what Bill did. Okay? He said he was to share generously in the profits. Did you have it all set up? You were going to do all right? You were so comfortable that you were going to do all right? You went out to celebrate? That's what Bill said. Then I went out on a prodigious bender, and that chance vanished. Any of you ever drink away your opportunity? Drug away your opportunity? When you start finding your experience in Bill's story, you really need to read to the end of the book. <laughs> okay. So he says, I woke up. This had to be stopped. How many of you concluded it had to be stopped long before you had any belief that it could be? I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. How many of you made that promise to yourself? How many of you learned along the way not to tell anyone else that little secret just in case it didn't turn out? <laughs> there you go. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. I was so convinced I was able to convince her. Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. Any of you have that experience? Any of you remember how... Just completely demoralizing, that is. Okay. I'm, I'm wanting you to tie into these experiences because we're going to bounce between the experience of powerlessness and the experience of power. And, and you're, to the extent there's choice, I mean, I'm going to have to pick a spiritual path or I'm going to have to stay where I am and blot out the consciousness of my miserable existence the best I can. So when you experience powerlessness, then... You'll, you'll know to capture the thought and keep moving, keep seeking. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So, so it says, shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. 
Where had been my high resolve? So he's asking himself a question. Any of you get there? You wouldn't talk that way exactly, but what the hell happened? Any, I mean, not talking about when you ended up using, but when you woke up and realized the secret was out. I simply didn't know. How many of you got to the point where you were at least honest with yourself enough to know? I don't even make up excuses anymore because I honestly don't know why I do it. And then somebody says, yes, you do, and then you just coughed up a lie. <laughs> right? Okay. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way, and I had taken it. Was I crazy? The thing I want to show you about reading and experience in this book is every place they put a question mark, take the question inward. It's a question for you. Eyesight without insight is spiritual blindness. So I want to go in and put myself in his shoes and align my experience with that and that thought. Does it make sense? So how many of you wondered if you were crazy? How many of you have since learned, yep, you're crazy? That's one of the things people don't understand because alcoholism and addiction doesn't necessarily look like some of the other mental illnesses in the spectrum. And all mental illness really is is extreme human behavior. And so what's happening may not be recognizable. It looks like choice, but, but we have no control over it. So therefore, because of the insanity, it's not choice. Does it make sense? Okay. All right. So... Um, I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. So Bill's starting to tell you what he meant by the insanity of alcoholism, not the stuff you've heard in the rooms over the years. It's not doing the same thing, expecting a different result. And that's not me being technical. It's not the description of alcoholic or addictive insanity. Because if you took it far enough, you did the same thing with no expectation of a different result. Fucking A. <laughs> Almost welcomed it. This is going to suck. Watch. Bring a camera. It's going to be epic. <laughs> so we, we need to remember that what they're talking, it's an appalling lack of perspective. In light of my history, when I drink and drug, I'm going to do it again. And I even have a gap since the last time. It makes no sense. I'm going to lose it all. And I'm going to do it anyway. It's an appalling lack of perspective. Okay. Renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. Now, those are weird words for us today. But how many of you got a little time in recovery and then started, I got this. Got a 90-day chip. <laughs> I'm going to start telling others what to do. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with your thought of others. What I'm talking about is I confuse the experience of grace with the illusion of control. Right. And when that happens and I don't continue to develop spiritually, eventually the illusion of control is so persistent I chase it into the gates of insanity or death. Make sense? All right. So, um, I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into the cafe to telephone. In no time at all, I was beating on the bar asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I'd manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. So see how he still thinks 
after the first drink it's a decision, but he doesn't even know that before the first drink he was already done. This is his learning curve. Does it make sense? Okay. Then he's going to tell us of an experience, and it isn't pleasant, but I want you to have it if you will, because all of us know it if we belong in a fellowship for addiction recovery. It says, the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. So how many of you can, some of you have felt you internalize that? The remorse, horror, hopelessness. Here we go again. It's going to happen again and again. And you're sitting here sober, right? So it is unforgettable, isn't it? Okay. The courage to do battle was not there. Any of you got there where now I've used, now I'm into the hopelessness, and I'm not ready to go, especially us opiate addicts, because we know we're going to be good and dope sick. No, like, yeah, no, screw that. Okay. All right. So it says the courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dared cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. Any of you get so spun and so just torn down that you really weren't even sure you could walk to where you needed to walk to be safe? Of course you have, because we've been running together for a minute, huh? That's what we do. Okay. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me that the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. So go with him and think about that time in your addiction where you saw other things happening, rebounding, and you're on the next downward spiral and you're like, I'm just toast. Okay? So then the thought comes, should I kill myself? How many of you had that thought? How many of you had it more than once? How many of you took a stab at it? The rest of us were just on the installment plan? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, suicide on the installment plan is what we call active addiction. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Jen would fix that. So two bottles and oblivion. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms, for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. How many of you did that? Wife, husband, roommate, took the money. There's two of you in the house. No earthly explanation for where the money went, except... (laughs) Do you know where the money is that was in my purse, in my pocket, in my drawer? No, fuck no. You sure you didn't lose it in the couch? Let's look. <laughs> Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. Any of you get there where you're just so full of self-condemnation that you couldn't get beyond it? Okay. There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape, and then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish I feared I would burst through my window, sash and all. 
Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with a heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. Any of you get on that train, went from one to the other, solve your methamphetamine problem with a little fentanyl solution? Solve your alcohol problem with an opiate solution? How many of you learned, like me, that while opiates is a suitable substitute for alcohol, alcohol is a, suitable, a terrible substitute for opiates? <laughs> it doesn't work in reverse is what I'm trying to say for those of you who didn't go there. Okay, so next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. So most of us have some experience with that crash, right? Now I'm strung out on multiple things. Okay. People feared for my sanity. Anybody start to catch on to maybe you were a little abnormal? But it said, so did I. How many of you got into the fear that maybe this isn't an act? You know what I'm talking about? Where I, I pretended like I was acting and I'm all tough and I can do this again. And of course I'm this way, I'm crazy. And then one day I thought, dude, maybe this isn't an act. Any of you with me? I mean, when you wake up in your car with a parrot on your shoulder. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay. I could. <laughs> I had a parrot. And when I was running and gunning out there, I had the parrot. And it kept the people away from me because when you see someone as toasty as I was, with a big white parrot on their shoulder that's barking like a dog, ain't nobody coming near you. <laughs> Trust and believe. How many of you experience homelessness and know we put on an act to keep people away? I didn't have to do nothing but just get that parrot to bark. <laughs> anyway. My brother-in-law is a physician, and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained, though certainly selfish and foolish, I'd been seriously ill bodily and mentally. So he went through what we just went through, explaining to Bill about this manifestation of an allergy that manifest as a craving beyond my mental control and, and that you, you didn't drink because you were alcoholic, but it was because you were alcoholic you drank that way. And when you go to seeking power found within you, you need to know you don't sin your way into being a sinner. You're born a sinner and you get redeemed. Just Sometimes we don't teach that very good either. Okay, so... So it says, it relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor. Why would that give us comfort? I really thought I was just completely morally bankrupt the way, as far as I went. So, so I, I had to know that the will that I had once had to do sometimes very difficult things and sometimes very great things was simply no longer present. Does that help? Some of you felt that. Okay. Though it often remains strong in other respects, my incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. 
So those of you who have struggled, I don't, who was in the room that had to pick up 30-day chips more than once? Twenty-four hour chips more than once. I had so many twenty-four hour chips. I would go down to the homeless shelter with Sean, and I had enough when I finally started getting straight to keep that meeting in chips for I don't know two, three weeks anyway. And you got to understand, in the homeless shelter, if you're giving away anything, everyone takes it. So you don't need one twenty-four hour chip. However many in the meeting, that's how many you need. I'm just telling you, I had a lot of 24-hour chips. That's what I'm trying to tell you. So if you're feeling like you're flawed some way, I'm telling you, it takes what it takes what it takes. Keep, keep standing up. Okay. So says it says that, though it often remains strong in other respects, my incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. So that metaphor simply means things are looking up. And how many of you had the experience of getting a little clean time and then got back into the confusing the experience of grace with the illusion of control? And, okay, so that's what he's talking about because I thought based on some treatment I had, now self-knowledge had fixed me. That's what he's talking about. So I went to town regularly, even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge, so he's going to call it out. He thought just knowing that about himself was enough. But it was not. For the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. I mean, you had that experience. A little bit of clean time, and then when it got bad, it didn't get bad gradually. It got bad quick. Okay, that's what he's talking about. So after a time, I returned to the hospital. This was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens, or I would develop a wet brain perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. Bill's about to describe some things to you that maybe you'll know in your own story. I was just miserable in trying to medicate my own misery until one day I saw the misery I was inflicting on my parents. He, at this time, is seeing the misery he's inflicting on his wife. And that's just a few moments before the miracle happens because at some instant, through all my selfishness and my delusion, when I saw what I was doing to others, a window opened into my consciousness and new power came in. And Bill's about to describe that to you. That's why we do the steps. Part of it is to find that moment where grace came in. It's important in your story, right? Okay. So it says, they did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. Are you on with them? You're dying. I know. Tell me when. Not a joke. Tell me when. I know I'm dying. I'm dead now, quite frankly. I just don't have the sense to die and lay out, you know. Okay. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. 
Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining that endless procession of sots who had gone on before. See, I always thought they were worse than me. I always thought I could pull out when I wanted to. I was doing what I wanted to, even though it was clear I was not equipped to do what it was I had to do. Anyone with me? Then when it's getting near the end, shoot, I'm one of them cats. Okay, that's what he's saying. I thought of my poor wife. See how his thought changes again? There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. So he immediately went back to self-pity, but he changed his thought for a minute. And pretty soon, events started to unfold for him. He said, no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter bitter morass of self-pity. So how many of you got to the place where it's never going to end, I'm just going to die, I don't know when, and I can't even make this right, no way. No words really can describe it, can they? It's useless to try and describe how pitiful. The, the authors talk about pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. Okay. All right, so quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink, and on Armistice Day 1934, I was off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. Now he's going to start talking about his recollection of an unfolding experience, but remember, he's always looking back. It's in past tense, so he knows something now he didn't know then. How many of you looked back even 30, 40 60 days from your last, and so much had transpired in your mental acuity, it was, all, it was like a different person, a different experience. So that's what he's, when he's telling you this story, he's got some clarity in it, but it's not instantaneous when you're living it. You've got to kind of walk it out, right? Okay. So he said, how dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. So he doesn't do much writing explaining the fourth dimension of existence, but we know because of the time, the fourth dimension is, is time and space, yes? And so basically if, if you're in the fourth dimension of existence, you're beyond time, you're beyond space, you're in the here and now, if that makes any sense. And those of you who learn to live in the here and now know that wherever you are, there you are, and most of it's survivable. And if it isn't survivable in the here and now, you got no more problems anyway. Right? Okay. All right. So, so I, I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. So the reason you got to look this down is because all of us want to know happiness and peace and usefulness. And it's based on a way of life. It's not based on going to meetings. It's, it's, it's based on a life of servitude, guys. And, and that we just do a terrible job in our fellowships of telling people it's, it's not a one and done. It's a way of life and it requires discipline and it, and it requires an active capturing of the thoughts and turning them to others. Okay? So, so near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. Any of you still had a kitchen to go drink in towards the end? <laughs> Some of us didn't, but anyway. 
With a certain satisfaction, I reflected there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. Any drinkers? Were you hiders? Drinkers or hiders? Do you remember having it hidden everywhere? In the car, under the seat, maybe? Everywhere. Okay. My wife was at work. I wondered whether I dared hide a full bottle of gin near the head of our bed. I'd need it before daylight. Any of you get sick enough you needed a nudge just to wake up and not be in DTs? Okay. My musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. That's in italics, those of you who are not following a book. So important you get that. It's such an unusual event that his old school friend was coming over. He was in New York. Apparently he had to travel to New York, and he was sober. And Ebby was that guy for Bill. That How many of you took it pretty far out? <laughs> Remember how we always tried to have one out there that was worse than us? So at least I'm not that bad yet. So that's Ebby. Ebby is, at least I'm not that bad yet. So it's really weird that he's in New York and sober. It was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. He's trying to get our attention because this is just not possible. Some people may have thought that about you. I guarantee you some people thought that about me. Okay. Rumor had it that he'd been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. This guy was so bad that if he really was committed for alcoholic insanity, he must have busted the chains and flown the coop. Ain't no way they let this cat out. Okay. Of course he would have dinner and then I could drink openly with him. Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was that time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing, an oasis. Drinkers are like that. So he knows he's going to stay hammered. He knows he's going to drink in front of his friend who is apparently trying not to drink. He's, you know, he knows all these things. And you've you got a question when he says drinkers are like that and you want to find yourself in there. You've got to ask yourself, what's an oasis? What is an oasis? A source of water in an arid place? But quite often it's a mirage. Right? How many of you went from mirage to water to mirage and, the, and the, the water got a lot stretched out after a while? Okay. That's why drinkers are like that because, you know, we, we can still recall something that hasn't happened in years and just know it's coming again. Okay. All right. So it says, the door opened and he stood there fresh-skinned and glowing. I always like you to consider that. This is, a, this is a man, a war hero, describing his drinking buddy who's a man. And he's describing him to us as fresh-skinned and glowing. So there's some reason, something is different about this. Yes? Okay. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What had happened? It caused him to go inward because it was so profound how different this man looked. How many of you have met somebody who you knew out running, and all of a sudden it was obvious, you couldn't hardly recognize, but they were different. That's the experience of it. Okay? 
So I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it. Disappointed, but curious, I wondered what had got into the fellow. He wasn't himself. Have you ever been disappointed, but curious? It's, it's kind of, this is, because I was taught you don't trust someone's not drinking. So I'm going to be a little disappointed. And then I'm going to go, well, more for me. Right? Okay. So it says, come, what's all this about? He's going to ask. I don't know. He looked straight at me, simply but smilingly. He said, I've got religion. Now, I, I need you. I don't care what your spiritual beliefs are. I don't care if you're atheist, agnostic, Pentecostal, whatever, whatever you got going on. If you're drunk and drinking, and the buddy you brought over that you thought you could have a drink with, when you ask why he is the way he is, says, I got religion, the fun meter goes, this is going to suck. Right? Okay. He says, I was aghast, so that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot, and now I suspected a little cracked about religion. Because we have ideas about that, right? He had that starry-eyed look. Yes, the old boy was on fire, all right. See how he's misidentifying his redemption with something else? But bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my drink would last longer than his preaching. Here's where it was profound for Bill. It says, but he did no ranting. In a matter-of-fact way, he told how two men had appeared in court persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. That was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. They take you to the third step prayer. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to your love, your power, your way of life. It isn't my bragging. It's their observation and my obviously changed condition. And when they ask, I say, my testimony. Two guys I've never met showed up in court. I was about to be committed for alcoholic insanity. And they said that if I wanted to go with them, that they would take me and show me what they had been shown, and the judge released me into their custody, and the condition was that I had to go tell somebody else, and now I'm here to see you, Bill. Pretty profound, isn't it? How many of you felt that? Yeah. Okay. So it says, it says that was two months ago, the result was self-evident. It worked, and he had come to pass his experience along to me if I cared to have it. Notice what he said he did. He came to pass his experience along to me, if I would have it. I was shocked, but interested. Certainly I was interested. I had to be, for I was hopeless. He talked for hours. Childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on still Sundays way over there on the hillside. There was that proffered temperance pledge I never signed. My grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folk and their doings, his insistence that the spheres really had their music, but his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen, his fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died, these recollections welled up from the past. They made me swallow hard. He recalled his grandfather not being too fond of church folks, but having a very well-grounded relationship with his creator. And so even when he was dying, 
he fearlessly spoke and denied anyone's right to tell him what he must believe in because he believed in his core what was going on with him. And then he says when that recollection came up to him about his grandfather's testimony, not just how he was but how gracefully he died and how he continued to claim his beliefs all the way out, the recollection came up on him and it made him swallow hard. How many of you looking back have seen how you've witnessed miracles? Maybe you've been the recipient of a miracle and when you recall it, all of a sudden you get flooded with emotion or something and you have to swallow hard to keep it from coming out. See how he's describing a move of the spirit, sensory and tangible. He said this guy came to tell him about a religious idea and a practical program of action. We've stopped telling people that in the modern fellowship. We say we're spiritual, we're not religious. Nonsense. What's that mean? What's that mean? It means nothing. It just tells me I can stay in my same prejudice. The simple religious idea is regardless of what you believe, God dwells in you. And a practical program of action that will prove that fact to you through you. So you can walk in the fearlessness of his grandfather all the way to the grave. And it's been happening for millions. Okay. All right. So he says that that wartime day in the Winchester Cathedral came back again. If you ever read his story, he was getting ready to go to war. He was scared. He went to a churchyard. And he saw in a grave of an old soldier who had survived war and drank himself to death. And it made him think he had summoned the creator and the peace came on him. And he was good for a while. And then he went to war and he lost that whole experience. So now he's back here. Now he's an old soldier, survived war. He's drinking himself to death. God was with me then. God's with me now. Yeah, that's right. Power is with me then. Power is with me now. Bill's a famous atheist moving towards agnosticism, and he's recalling these experiences, and the spirit in him is moving. Make sense? So then it says, I'd always believed in a power greater than myself. I'd often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. So now he's renouncing atheism, and he's starting to just move into what most of us suffer from, and that's just chronic doubt. We say we're believers, but when things get a little rocky, we're like, I'm screwed this time. Okay. Nobody else? Few people really are, for that means blind faith and strange proposition that the universe originated in a cipher and aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists, suggested vast laws and forces at work. Despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. So he's telling you about his... Fundamental beliefs as he's just getting started on the journey. So wherever you are, you don't need to know even what you believe. You just need to know that something greater than you believes in you and sent whoever to you to help you get to know him. <laughs> okay. All right. So how could there be so much precise and immutable law and no intelligence? I simply had to believe in a spirit of the universe who knew neither time nor limitation. But that was as far as I was gone. With ministers in the world's religions, I parted right there. When they talked of a God personal to me, who was love, superhuman strength, and direction, I became irritated, and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. To Christ, I conceded the certainty of a great man not too closely followed by those who claimed him. 
So the bill is relaying to you his prejudice. I'm not going to go off into any kind of religious thing here because it's not the proper place. But I'm telling you, that's how his belief system was at the time he had his encounter. And yet, he, four years later, five years later, nearly publishes this book. And millions and millions of people based on this testimony are now free. Okay. So... I'm going to go down to the middle of that page. It said, but my friend sat before me and he made the point blank declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. So this power had done for Ebby what he could not do for himself. Because it didn't matter now. He knew Ebby. He knew Ebby couldn't be well. I mean, you, you could sit in a room and you could tell me this, and if I didn't know you in your cups, I mean, because we clean up so well. Right? But he knew Ebby. Okay. His human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he had admitted complete defeat. Then he had an effect, been raised from the dead, taken from the scrap heap, <clears throat> taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he'd ever known. Guys, I'm going to end up running out of time, so I want to tell you this. Over the years, we've had these discussions about whether we're recovered or we're recovering. And that only came about because the medical diagnosis and people got caught. And in fact, since they never try to heal my alcoholism because it's a manifestation of an allergy, the solution to an allergy is don't drink. It doesn't need a cure. But they weren't talking about a medical diagnosis or a medical recovery because it wasn't a diagnosis. So what they're talking about is a redemption, a reclamation. If you look in the dictionary for what recovered is, you'll also find not along with medical recovery, you'll also find that to take from what was thought waste and extract something infinitely valuable. Right? So to be recovered is to take that wasted life and extract from that the experience, the experience of grace that brought you to this point and then use that experience of great as fuel, grace as fuel to free others. So we're recovered. They say it. 17 times in the instructions. Right? So, huh? 52. Thank you, Sean. It's good to have an expert in the room. Okay. So, had this power originated in him? So now he's getting honest with himself. He's seeing the guy, he knows what he's seeing. Obviously, did not. There'd been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute, and this was none at all. And then it says, that floored me. It began to look as though religious people were right after all. Here was something at work in the human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. Here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted, great tidings. I'm going to walk you out on that. When he knew it was real, he then knew miracles were real. When you see a resurrection in real life, you know it's not theoretical. I will say this one more thing in passing. We kept praying and living in faith for the last 70 days. Nobody that I know of has ever survived an OIG Suspension of payments for even a month, much less nearly three months. Here we are. 
because of your faith and because we pray and anoint this place with oil. Thanks very much. We'll get into two next week.